You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Derek. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Pretty good. Let me introduce us. Uh, I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. Um, you are Derek Davison, uh, and you wear, I guess, more than one hat. Um, uh, a couple of them are under the, um, the what, Foreign Exchanges brand. You put out yes. uh, a podcast called Foreign Exchanges. You put out a Substack newsletter whose official name is either FX or Foreign Exchanges. No, it's foreign Exchanges. I, I just use FX as shorthand. Okay. I'm hoping that the people at FX TV station don't yell at me someday for that. But, you, you haven't, you uh, haven't been sued yet. Not yet. No, I've been able to dodge it so far. That would be good publicity. <laughs> I, I, I'm waiting for some major entity to sue me and really put me on the map. I keep trying to antagonize them, but they seem unaware. That's a of good me. point, actually. Maybe I should be rooting for that. Totally. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, something of an expert in, uh, foreign affairs, especially, uh, I guess you're, you're, uh, Educational pedigree is, is, uh, has to do largely with Islamic studies. Is that right? Yeah. Middle Eastern studies and Middle Eastern history. I came close to getting a PhD, but not all the way. Okay. You kept a, a, a barely I, safe distance from that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. I kept a little, you know, comfort zone there. Okay. Uh, and you were also editor of Low Blog, which evolved into Responsible Statecraft, which is the, publication of the Quincy Institute. Correct. I was uh, the last, the last editor with the, uh, with Jim Loeb there on the, on Loeb blog. Yeah. Loeb's been, uh, Jim, Jim has been on the show. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, he should come back. It's been too long. Yeah. So, um, so we're going to talk about more than one thing, but I, I thought we should start out on Iraq. Uh, since, uh, the U.S., uh, within the last week, uh, launch, launch strikes on a militia there, I guess. And. All militias, yeah. More than one? Yeah, there were two of them. Kataib Hezbollah and Kataib Sayyid al-Shahada. Okay. Uh, that sounded better coming from you than it would have from me. <laughs> that sounded very authentic. Um, the, uh, and uh, there has been retaliation since then. Uh, I, I mean, the, I, I guess the yes. strikes were were in response to drone strikes that had targeted uh, American soldiers in Iraq. But the retaliation came against uh, American forces in Syria. Yes, right. right. There were. Uh, I mean, these militias operate on both sides of the border. They've gone into Syria to help. Bashar al-Assad and kind of set up shop on the, in mostly along the border region, but uh, to some degree, like Kitab Sayyid al-Shahada is active in Damascus, for example, yeah. uh, or has been. Um, and yeah, so the, the strikes were retaliation for a, a lot of recent attacks against U.S. personnel, but I think especially the rise of drone attacks, which uh, I get the sense has the United States a little bit concerned that uh, they're they're moving from relatively primitive, you know, kind of dumb rockets, Katusha rockets, to something more sophisticated, and so uh, you know that kind of sparked the the retaliation. But they hit, 
I think two facilities in Syria and one in Iraq that are used by these two militias and maybe more. We don't, uh, it's not clear. Now these are, uh, I assume these, these are missile firing drones and not kamikaze drones. Um, that I don't know. Um, uh, I get the sense that they're not missile firing drones, that that's, that's a little more advanced, but, um, I may be wrong about that. Well, they're see, either, they- they're probably either, um, kamikaze drones or something relatively unsophisticated that would drop like a grenade or something on a target. But, but I don't know. I don't know that for, for a fact. I mean, they are getting them probably from Iran, which does have some more uh, sophisticated technology, but I don't, I don't, I can't say how exactly how sophisticated these are. I mean, the reason I ask is because in principle, kamikaze drones seem extremely easy to create. I mean, you know, just, a hobbyist can get a, a can order a drone that can carry enough explosive to kill a person and i right. i've almost wondered why this hasn't become a bigger problem just from just from crazy like terrorists in any given country including america yeah i mean the the technology is ubiquitous even for something like a quadcopter that you can rig up to like drop an explosive on a target um, you know, ISIS or the, well, the Islamic State, whatever you want to call it, has d- used that technology. It's it's off the shelf, basically. I mean, you just buy these things and, and kind of jury rig them, and they do your thing. Um, I I've been I've been a little bit curious about that too because there's this um, at the United on the United States side of this, there's been a tendency to build like bigger and fancier and, you know, more expensive, like really more expensive uh, drones. And, and I think we're seeing some other countries like China's done this, Turkey's doing it increasingly building, um, you know, much less sophisticated drones that still get the job done, uh, but don't cost you a hundred million dollars a pop. And, you know, they're, the technology is not, proprietary there's nothing particularly sensitive about it so they're easier to export you don't have to worry about you know uh forbidden technology falling into uh, evil hands and and yeah they get i mean they get the same job done for uh substantially less cost i don't I, i'm not quite sure why it's taken this long to get to that place but that that seems to be where we're heading yeah, it just seems like a technology that could raise the costs of occupation for a force that is not welcomed by everyone in the country, which seems to be the case with our forces in Iraq. Yes, certainly. <laughs> I mean, this has been, we're at almost a year and a half now since the Iraqi parliament voted to get the U.S. out of the country and, and we're still there. So, yeah, it's yeah not so, wanted. So that's a strange um feature of this is that we, if you ask us why we did it, I, I assume we'd say both that we were uh, protecting our own troops, but that in a certain sense, I mean, in a certain sense, our presence is supposed to be there on behalf of the Iraqi government, right? I mean, we claim, don't we, we don't claim to be illegal occupiers of the country, right? No, and, I mean, yeah, in Iraq, especially Syria is different. I mean, we are right. clearly occupying part of Syria, but Iraq is supposed to be at the at the behest of the Iraqi government. And yet the government condemned our attack on people in Iraq. And I've seen different kinds of news accounts of this, some kind of uh, 
suggesting that, well, the government has to say this for political reasons, but its heart is not really in it. It's kind of caught between, you know, the Americans and these militias. Uh, do you have a, uh, can you illuminate I, the, the government's like perspective a little? I mean, I think that's, that, that's part of it. There is a, a sense that, you know, I mean, the, the successive prime ministers of Iraq, and they've had many, obviously, because the, the, the government has been more or less dysfunctional since the invasion, the U.S. invasion. Um, but successive prime ministers have been, you know, they had to do this dance to even get the job, let alone stay in it for any length of time, where they're kind of caught between Iran on the one hand and the United States on the other, and they have to sort of appease both. And this is, I mean, yes, there is some of that. You know, you sort of have to make a statement like this, uh, criticizing the United States for an attack like this. But I, I do think um, the the comments that Mustafa Khadami made uh, this time um, after these strikes were, were they seemed significantly more pointed to me than than hmm. uh, previous comments. And I think there's there's a, a good deal of frustration, um, you know, that the United States uh, ostensibly uh, in Iraq to protect Iraq from a resurgence of the Islamic State is using Iraq as a platform to, you know, sort of uh tweak Iran or contain Iran or whatever, you know, whatever the policy is, I don't I'm not sure from day to day. Um but you know the I think the in in some sense the the last straw was the Qasem Soleimani attack in you know January 2020, which was conducted on Iraqi soil and, and it was just like uh, you know, incredibly disdainful. And admittedly, this is a different administration in Washington now. So, you know, they might not have done the same thing, but uh, it was incredibly disdainful of Iraqi sovereignty. Soleimani was in Iraq at the behest of the Iraqi government. He was there to meet with people, um, you know, in the Iraqi government. And the United States just took, availed itself of the opportunity to kill him on Iraqi soil. It's, it's you know, it's a huge insult to the Iraqi government. And I think the frustration level with, the United States doing these kinds of things, you know, kind of freelancing against Iranian interests in Iraq is is really building up on the part of the, the Iraqi government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as I recall, candidate Joe Biden responded to that by kind of warning about how it could spire, it could lead to escalation and be a bad idea kind of tactically. But I don't think he condemned it as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty or anything. No, I don't. I mean, yeah, that, did, that didn't seem to be a consideration for anybody in the U.S. at the time. Yeah. Um, so uh, what uh, maybe we should talk a little more about the character of these militias. They're they're commonly identified as Iran backed. Um, and I'm sure they in some sense are. Uh, but there are, you know, degrees of backing or, or let me put it another way there are degrees of autonomy that 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 forces that are in some sense proxies can have and 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 i don't really and, and i think uh generally when you hear the term certainly when you hear the term proxy or iran backed or russia backed or whatever you kind of tend to imagine them just taking orders from the sponsor country and in this case i honestly don't and i know in some cases that's a misleading way to think about it because these groups have their own political interests and sometimes uh uh decide to to take action 
they may or may not clear it with the sponsor, but in any event, the, 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 you know, the, the, the initiative isn't coming from the sponsor. I, I, I have no idea what the situation is with these militias. How would you, how would you just describe like what they're about and, and what yeah, their I mean, decision making paradigm is? There's so many of them. You, you can't really talk about all of them as one thing. Um, and, and I wouldn't, you know, even pretend to know all of them because there's too many to, to track uh, for somebody who's not like a specialist in Iraqi militias. But and are uh, a lot of them, uh, there are a lot of them that actually get some backing from Iran. The the Shia militias, I think many of them do. There are some Shia militias that are um, more directly affiliated with. Um, Iraq's Shia establishment, so like uh, Muqtada Sadr or uh, Ayatollah Sistani, uh, you know, that are that are more aligned with them. And and there's, you know, despite the fact, I think the United States often conflates all Shia as being kind of under Iran's thumb on some level. Um, there there are clear divergences between them. Uh, most of the big ones, though, I I, I think are are in Iran's orbit to some degree, but as you say, it's, it's, um, it's not a, a direct relationship. They're not taking day-to-day orders from Iran and they don't necessarily even do what Iran wants them to do at any given time. And, and, you know, this is a, an error I think that bleeds into a lot of coverage of the Middle East. You talk about the Houthi movement in, in Yemen, you talk about Hezbollah and Lebanon, uh, you know, there's this sense that they're taking marching orders from from Tehran 24 hours a day, and that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, the 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 best example I can give in Iraq was, you know, part of the lead up to the uh, the attack, the strike that killed Soleimani was this sort of back and forth tension between the militias in the United States and the U S conducted a couple of airstrikes. And uh, at one point the, the militias, I think stormed a U.S. consulate in, uh, in Southern Iraq. And I'm, I, I may be remembering this wrong, but my recollection is that that was not something like there was talk of, you know, Iran kind of not wanting them to do that. Like, you know, saying, don't, you know, you're at, you don't antagonize in this way. And, and the militias sort of went ahead and did it anyway. And that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, they get support, they get uh, some coordination, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a hundred percent by any means. So it's, it's, it's possible that in the Suleimani assassination, what we would have cited as kind of the, the proximate, uh, provocation actually hadn't, hadn't come from Iran, in fact. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, Soleimani was such a, you know, important figure that, that there was probably some, um, yeah, it, it would have been, that was in motion. You could anyway. have found something he did that led to American right. deaths at right. some point in the past. Right. But there trouble. was a context of this back and forth with, it was Qatar Hezbollah, in mm-hmm. fact, like a back and forth between the U.S. and, and that militia, that, seeming seem to culminate in in the Soleimani assassination. Okay. So, um it sounds pretty complicated. Uh you've got it, it sounds like you could broadly d- divide the the Shia militia into well, that, even that I'm sure would be too simple, but think of them as some that are have fairly close links to Iran, some the that don't. I mean, there, there, uh, there is a, a very large Shia population in Iraq, after all. And then, of course, you've got the Sunnis. I mean, to what extent? 
I guess one question is, to what extent are politics in Iraqi divided along sectarian lines to begin with? That, of course, was one thing that, uh, well, I guess uh, many Americans discovered for, for the first time after we invaded Iraq <laughs> that, um, you know, there, there were Shia and there were Sunni. And Iraq had long been run uh, largely by uh, Sunni, even though there was uh, a Shia majority. And so disrupting that uh, could lead to a certain amount of instability, as it did. Um, well, is it is it still fair to characterize that as like the fundamental political dividing line in Iran, Sunni Shia? I think it's hard. I mean, to Iraq. S- sorry. Say, yeah, no, I think it's hard to 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 say that. The, uh, to me, um, you would have to unpack a lot of layers of corruption and the dysfunction that that causes to to get at. Uh, sectarianism as a problem. The, the big issue from, from my, um, you know, admittedly kind of outsider understanding of Iraqi politics is, is the real problem is you have a lot of, uh, sort of ineffectual party bosses in Baghdad who want to hand out offices as rewards to backers and, and to their supporters and kind of control their own fiefdoms. Um, and, and that kind of freezes the government in place. You have the same group of people that, that don't get anything done that kind of control Iraqi politics. Uh, and it's been very hard and this has been the frustration. That's why I think you see protests, you know, really mostly in the, the Shia uh, heavy parts of the country in southern uh, Iraq, Baghdad, and, and south. Um, you know, the, the protests are over these kind of this political elite that really is just, you know, prevents even basic services from happening, like electricity provision and, uh, you know, infrastructure development because they are kind of tied up in, in their little, uh, you know, political infighting and political games. And mm-hmm. I, I think you know, to say to what degree that's driven by sectarianism, I think sectarianism is probably pretty far down on the list at this point. It's it's really more this kind of uh, corruption and, and office seeking yeah. and, and that sort of so, thing. So you mentioned Muqtada al-Sadr, um, who's been a figure from ever since immediately after the invasion, a figure of significance. Uh, he is Shia who has always seemed to be something of a populist. I mean, I mean, he, he, it seems to me he has a pretty big, uh, lower income constituency. Is, is that right? And, and I, so I would imagine he, I, he would be railing against corrupt elites. Uh, and, and as I recall, he, it seems to me he, you know, like a decade ago or something was, or 15 years ago or something was thought of as, Pretty tight with Iran, but at some point, I recall him starting to say things suggesting, uh, that it was quite the opposite. So what is, what is his status? He was a very important figure, uh, in the early, uh, kind of Shia resistance. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was one of the, the big kind of militia leaders, basically, that, that was resisting, that resisted the, what I think would be properly termed U.S. occupation at that point in the early, uh, kind of years after the war. Um, Muqtada Sadr has been, um, uh, it seems to me fairly mercurial, uh, about a lot of these things. You're right. He, he kind of positioned himself as a populist. 
uh, for a while he was, uh, you know, viewed as close to Iran then as I think resentment has started to grow toward Iran among some Iraqi Shia who view kind of Iranian interference as part of the problem uh, in Baghdad. He sort of shifted and started criticizing the Iranians. Um, at some point during the protests, and, and there were, you know, kind of major protests that began in late 2019 uh, against the Iraqi government and, and turned very violent uh, for a time. At, at some point, Muqtada Sadr went from kind of being part of that movement to coming in and trying to position himself as a political uh, kingmaker in Baghdad. Um, and even at one point turned his own militia on the protesters to kind of, you know, uh, uh, assist Iraqi police in suppressing these things. And I, I, I think has lost as a result, some of that populist cred, but, but I don't, uh, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not as prominent, it seems to me, as, as he was. And maybe that's part of the reason why, but I, I couldn't say that for sure. Okay. And what is the, uh, what is the disposition of the government with respect to the, the sectarian issue? I mean, I didn't even know whether, uh, whether the prime minister is Shia or Sunni. You, uh, I'm sure you do. Um, uh, yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the makeup, it's kind of, it's similar to, the Lebanese, the rules about the Lebanese government, the prime minister, um, is, is Shia, uh, must be Shia. Uh, the president of Iraq, uh, is a Kurd, uh, Barham Saleh. And this is all uh, by, this is mandated. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's in the sort of, uh, rules. I don't know if it's rises to the constitutional level or, but it's, it's in the, the sort of, uh, you know, rules that, that the U.S. and Iraq kind of hashed out after the invasion for the, for the new government. Um, the Speaker of Parliament is supposed to be a Sunni Arab. So those, those are kind of the three main offices. And then you have, and this is part of the, the problem in terms of kind of the bloat and the, the corruption in Baghdad. You have a lot of offices, um, underneath those three, like deputy prime ministers and, uh, you know, that, that are all kind of supposed to be parceled out to each community. And, and that's what leads to a lot of kind of, uh, you know, shifting offices around and trying to put, you know, your supporters or your backers in a, in a, an office where they basically do make work. I mean, it's a, it's a cushy job for, for, you know, not a lot of, uh, uh, not a lot of responsibility. And uh, so I assume the, the corruption is uh, manifested in a certain amount of just day to day dysfunction in the in the government's provision of services, and that's one thing a lot of people don't like. Yeah, I mean it, it especially hits hard in the summer, and you see you, you see a rise in protests over the last few years. Has been a, a, a an escalation kind of consistently in the summer because. You know, the temperatures, especially, you know, the last few years, uh, thanks, I think, in part to climate change, the temperatures in southern Iraq in the summer are just, uh, you know, unbearable. Uh, so the demand for air conditioning goes up, the demand for electricity goes up in Iraq, despite having, you know, vast uh, hydrocarbon resources doesn't provide enough electricity. It, it imports uh, a good deal of electricity from from Iran, in fact. Um, and, and so, you know, you have a lot of blackouts, the infrastructure is not good, the power grid's not stable, and people get frustrated and they, they go out in the streets and protest. Is this discontent to some extent, uh, kind of a, 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 tr- 
a trans sectarian uniter of Iraqis? I mean, does it, does that subdue the ethnic tensions? The fact that uh, lots of <laughs> a I mean, diverse, of diversity protests, of people yeah. hate the government. Most of the protests you hear about are in the the Shia, the predominantly Shia parts of the country. So hmm. Uh, hmm. in Baghdad and to the south, um, uh, you, I don't hear so much about protests in. Uh, let's say the Arab Sunni region and, and the Kurdish, Kurdish region, the Kurdistan regional government is really more the authority there. There have been some protests against the KRG and, and there is, you know, kind of in a microcosm, some of the same dysfunction, but the KRG has enough autonomy that they, they kind of are able to manage some of these things independently of Baghdad. Uh, the, that it's, it's a good question. And I, I just don't, I, I haven't seen reporting on, uh, a lot of major protests in uh, Sunni dominant cities. And part of that may be because they're still rebuilding a lot of those places. I mean, Mosul's still, you know, mostly in rubble and, and Fallujah and, and uh, uh, Ramadi places that IS uh, captured and have been uh, really pulverized. The, the big issue in those places is, a lot of people are still displaced. They're still in camps. And, and that's really, I mean, there's frustration over that. Um, but, but they may not, I don't think the situation there is at the point where you can uh, complain about the electricity turning off. There are still bigger kind of recovery issues being dealt with. Okay. And then maybe my last uh, sectarian question for a while, is there a clear cut correlation with kind of, Socioeconomic class. I mean, are, are Shia, broadly speaking, you know, are on average lower income level than Sunni or anything like that? I don't at at this point. I don't know. I mean, there was obviously when Saddam Hussein was in power, there was a clear preference uh, on some level for, um, you know, a Sunni ruling elite uh, right. in the Ba'ath Party. Um, you know, the bat, bathism never had a, historically never really had a lot of appeal for Shia. Um, but there were, I mean, there were still, you know, wealthy Shia, middle class Shia. I mean, it was, you know, kind of yeah. up and down the line. I think, um, there's probably more, um, there are probably more kind of lower class, working class Shia, but that that's largely a function of the fact that they are the majority of the population and, and there's just more of everything, you know, uh, in, in that, that particular segment. Okay. So as for the kind of military situation, I gather there are Iran backed militias that would like the U S to leave the country, but also militias that, uh, that are not so closely aligned with Iran that would also like the U.S. to leave the country? I mean, I, yeah, I think there's a, there's still some concern about IS. There's some concern that if the United States leaves, then... That's the Islamic um, this, State. Right, right. And there's some concern that if the United States leaves, then this kind of balancing game that's been going on is going to shift uh, completely in Iran's direction. And a lot of people, I think, don't want that. Um, so there are concerns. You mean about, a lot of Iraqis don't want a lot that. of Iraqis, right? A lot of Iraqis don't want that. Um, that doesn't mean that they want the U.S. military in Iraq. It just means you know there are considerations about what a withdrawal would look like. Mm -hmm. um, you know the 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 Iraqi government, the executive branch, the prime minister, and, and the cabinet, um, I think doesn't 
want the United States to leave necessarily. I don't think Mustafa Al-Khadami wants uh, the United States to leave. Um, but he does have to be responsive to the parliament, which is, you know, more, you know, a little more dominated by, um, kind of anti-U.S. interests and voted again after the, the Soleimani incident voted to, to hmm. order the United States out. It was a non-binding vote, but it's still reflected, um, you know, a political reality in Baghdad. Um, you know, I think there are, so I think there are, are concerns about what might happen if the United States pulls out, but I would say, yeah, for the most part, uh, we're not a, a popular uh, presence, especially when we do things like attacking militia camps or, you know, attacking uh, Iranian diplomatic visitors and things like that. It's it's really, uh, you know, it doesn't do much for the U.S. standing in, in that country. And among people who have the concern about the U.S. pulling out, the concern is to some extent that there would be a resurgence of the Islamic State or that's just one of many concerns. Um, I, yeah, I think it's, it's probably, you know, it's, it's a, an array of things and, and not everybody's going to have the same level of concern, but certainly the Islamic state is not gone. I mean, it carries mm-hmm. out attacks, um, you know, largely in sort of the, across a middle band in the, in the country in Anbar province and, uh, you know, to some extent in, uh, Kirkuk or around Kirkuk and Diala, it's still active. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think on some level there, there is a concern that it could, um, come back a little bit. And of course it's, you know, if, if you go across the border, it's still, um, we know it still has a presence in, in the Syrian desert where, you know, it's really difficult to kind of track anybody down and, and, uh, do anything about it, but they're still engaged in fighting with the Syrian military and, and other forces there. Yeah. I mean, of course, Iran would be happy to, to try to help Iraq take care of the Islamic state. I'm sure I mean, they've um, done. Yeah. They have done, you know, and by some standards, I would say the lion's share. I mean, it was the, it was the militias part of the reasons the militias exist. Uh, still, um, you can, you can date many of them back to the U.S. Uh, invasion, but a lot of them kind of, uh, either formed or got a second wind, uh, when, uh, the Islamic State swept through in 2014. And they were like the last line of defense as the Iraqi military was crumbling and, and falling back. The, the militias were the, uh, the forces that kind of stood up and, and halted that advance. And for the, for the Shia militias, I mean, the, the Islamic State is almost an existential threat, right? I mean, uh, they would not fare well in, a, in an Iraq run by the Islamic State. No, certainly not. Yeah, certainly not. Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, I guess the thought experiment, this thought experiment is too complicated to conduct probably. Like, what would happen if the U.S. withdrew? I'm sure there are different theories. Uh, I, I mean, it seems like it would, it would, uh, lend power to two opposing forces. Uh, the Islamic State and Iran, for starters, right? And they don't like each other, so it's kind of unclear what would happen there. And I have no idea what else would happen. I mean, maybe there's a, a fear of just a br- more broad-based dissolution or something. I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I, I, it's it's almost too <laughs> incomprehensible to think about. But I, you know, I mean, the the United States, um, you know, still is is the main. Again, more on the executive side of the Iraqi government, but the United States is the still the main kind of prop up, you know, kind of support pillar for the Iraqi government. If uh, yeah, for for it to for us to withdraw, I think um, you know, I think 
the doomsday scenario of like either the Islamic State sweeping across the Middle East again or Iran kind of building this, you know, new empire, which is what you hear sometimes from Iran, uh, from Hawks in, uh, in Washington. Uh, I don't think either of those things would happen. I, I suspect it would be, um, you know, it would not be quite that catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Iraqi government would certainly, uh, face some, it would, it would be destabilizing. I mean, it would destabilize the status quo. I, I, I would argue that the status quo in Iraq is not very good, uh, and maybe yeah. should be destabilized. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to, to know exactly, you know, what kind of effect that would have on Iraqi politics. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Afghanistan in the sense that, uh, I mean, if, 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 if the, if the presence of a, you know, relatively small number of American troops, although very high tech and well armed and capable American troops is essential to the survival of the government on a day to day basis. I mean, the, the underlying situation is just not very healthy, right? I mean, right. Th- there's just something weird about that. And yet the only way to get to something that might be a healthier situation seems to be to do something that in the short term is destabilizing, which is for the U.S. to leave. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite as as precarious as Afghanistan, where, you know, the Taliban really, you know, may well take over the country once the U.S. leaves. And that's, uh, you know, for a lot of people in Afghanistan is, is, you know, for obvious reasons, not a desirable outcome. Uh, um, You know, I don't think the Iraqi government is going to collapse. I don't think you're going to have some uh, other force taking power in Baghdad if if the United States leaves. But, yeah, it would I mean, it would certainly shake up um, what has become a pretty dysfunctional uh, has been really, I mean, I shouldn't say become has been for uh, quite some time now, uh, a very dysfunctional political kind of uh, stasis. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's a little hard for me to imagine, like, I guess how exactly the, the troops there are vital to the, uh, the, 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 the ongoing strength of the government such as it is i mean i guess that just consists of their ability to basically blow away uh any armed forces that that generate great uh, significant threat to the government is is that it like yeah i think i mean from from the iraqi side it's just sort of having them there on some level although again i don't i don't think their presence um is that popular uh, the u.s side like i i there was a uh, the Quincy Institute actually did a thing a couple of days ago that, um, you know, I, I had to laugh. The, uh, they were sort of, they put out a, a new paper that said, uh, you know, it's time to bring all U.S. forces home from the Middle East and, you know, laying out the case for that. Um, and they did a little symposium around the paper. And, and I don't know uh, if you're familiar with Paul Pillar, the, he's, he's sure. an ex- CIA analyst who does, uh, you know, a lot of foreign policy writing now. Um, and, and, you know, he made, I think, a very apt comment, which was, uh, you know, basically U.S. military forces uh, are in the Middle East to counter attacks on U.S. military forces in the Middle East, like to, to you know, sort of prevent those attacks from ever to deter those attacks from happening. Uh, but that that's really what it is at this point. It's sort of this uh, weird kind of 
circular logic that we're in the Middle East to, to deter Iran from attacking U.S. interests, but the only place that Iran can attack U.S. interests is in the Middle East. So, you know, what, what is the, the sort of logic to, to staying there? Um, you know, only in, only in Washington does that make sense, yeah. I guess. Uh, no. but from the Iraqi perspective, I think it's just basically a counterweight type of a thing. Yeah. Now, Paul is so, smart and level-headed. And he, at one point, was, uh, I think, in charge of gathering national intelligence for that whole region. He was the senior yes. yeah. intelligence uh, officer for the whole region. And uh, I encourage people just to Google him and read whatever he says about anything in the area. The last name is P-I-L-L-A-R. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, as for our presence in the region, do, do you have a sense for... Uh, what the Biden administration's uh, rationale for it is. Of course, they inherited the situation. It's not that easy to get out of. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, the uh, the Syrian part of the presence, which is uh, a little stranger than the Iraq. I mean, we all know how we wound up in Iraq, right? Uh, but um, – the Syrian thing actually started on Obama's watch, right? I mean, we think of, yes. we think of a lot of people think of Trump as having kind of escalated that, but I, I specifically remember when Obama said, "Okay, we're going to intervene. We're, we're we're going to help the rebels, but there will be no boots on the ground." I think he used that phrase, and right, then I remember right. they established pretty soon some boots on the ground, not many, a few hundred or something. But I remember tweeting. Like, oh, that didn't last long or something like, you know, the boots on the ground pledge. And I, I thought the tweet might get some traction, but it got like zero. And of course, you know, sometimes there are all kinds of reasons a tweet can get no traction. But it just seemed like I just thought, wait, we're, we're crossing a major threshold here and no one seems to be paying much attention. And now it's we have more troops there. And now, uh, you know, Trump has said, well, now they're there so we can take the oil, basically, with admirable candor, I thought. Give him credit for some things. Yeah, and Trump actually drew down that force. After uh, building it up, and, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, they sort of, the logic well, he, was, yeah. you no, know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, he himself, part of him wanted to get out entirely, and he kept right. kind of trying, but he just... I don't know what combination of forces prevented it. I mean, he just, he, uh, let's face it, he's a guy who chronically cannot get his shit together. So it's not surprising <laughs> that he no, just I wouldn't mean, get us a, a complex task doing, performed. Right. But at the same time, there was resistance from various places in the, in the establishment and he couldn't overcome it. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I mean, the, the initial, um, you know, Obama's initial response to the Syrian rebellion to the the civil war was you know we're we're not we're going to work with the rebels we're not going to do you know we're going to have us a uh, direct us intervention but we could arm these groups and train them and and that kind of thing um you know and that then you know briefly escalated into potential airstrikes after there were, you know, allegations of uh, Assad using chemical weapons. And, uh, you know, he backed down in the face of congressional opposition. It wasn't until 2014. And, and again, I mean, it had to do with the Islamic state uh, and that kind of their sudden kind of sweep through mm -hmm. a third of Iraq that, that um, all of a sudden 
uh, you know, the United States was, was back in, in this region to, to, you know, like moving, uh, in the opposite direction. I mean, we had sort of been withdrawing, we'd withdrawn uh, to a large extent from Iraq. Uh, and now, you know, th- at that point, it was like, we got to go back in. And, and at some point, um, during that mission, they decided or Obama decided that, uh, we couldn't just operate in Iraq. We had to go into Syria to, uh, to do the same thing, you know, to counter yes. the Islamic State because, um, you know, because of the, the, the fact that the Islamic State kind of ignored that Iraq Syria border and they were operating on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, Trump I'm kind sure of escalated that. And I, I notice uh, from the background uh, yeah, voice that, that the word Syria, <laughs> the word Syria seems to sound like the word Siri. To uh, sorry about that, yeah, me. I don't know. It's, she's a little sensitive today. See, yeah, uh, <laughs> like, like many people, she 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 thinks everyone, the whole world, is about her. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Trump escalated that uh, deployment and and you know working with. The Kurds, mostly the the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, and they finally, you know, captured, uh, uh, you know, uh, IS's capital in in Syria and and Rajaf and, um, or uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm like blanking out, but uh, they finally captured, uh, you know, did away with IS in at least that part of northeastern Syria where the the uh, the Kurds predominate. Uh, and then it was at that point that Trump, you know, you saw Trump kind of trying to get U.S. forces out of Syria and being thwarted, uh, you know, to some degree by his own administration. Um, but the, the presence there now, you know, is, is again, it's, it's, uh, the mission is sort of justified as, uh, we have to stay in case of a resurgence by the Islamic State, but, but they're really there. Um, one, you know, to squat on the oil fields, which, which, as you say, Trump was sort of admirably frank about, uh, and two, as this sort of, again, kind of counterweight to, uh, Iran, because there's this perception that if the U.S., uh, were to leave, Iran would just kind of control this entire crescent of territory from you which, know, everywhere from Yemen be- all the way around to Lebanon. Which would be a problem for what reason? Because of, because it could more readily supply <laughs> arms to Hezbollah and uh, Israel wouldn't like that or what? Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of it. I think that's, that's, you know, the underlying thing is Iran could make itself more of a problem for Israel. Um, but there's, there's sort of a, you don't even get to that level in the, the sort of discourse about it in, in Washington. It's just like manifestly Iran having influence anywhere is a bad thing. Like mm-hmm. ipso facto, like there's no, uh, you, you don't usually get to, to kind of, get people to drill down into why that should matter. And do you have a sense, I mean, to, well, to get back to, to Iran's influence in Iraq, uh, uh, as well as, uh, but, but, but also, I mean, this to include their, their influence in Syria, uh, to what extent, uh, they consider the American presence in both places, a threat to them, an actual threat to Iran's, uh, security. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there is some, you know, again, a lot of this kind of influence did develop in, I hate to keep going back to uh, the Islamic State, because it's played out at this point. But, you know, that's where a lot of this uh, Iranian 
the sort of increase in Iranian influence and involvement, the kind of direct involvement in Iraq and, uh, you know, kind of developed uh, because there was a, a concern about, you know, how quickly the Islamic State had uh, kind of swept through and, and what that meant for the region and, and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the need to bolster um, the Iraqi government and, and the Iraqi military, even as a sort of buffer uh, for Iran, uh, you know, Syria, it's, it's more like Bashar al-Assad is, is, was sort of Iran's one close Arab ally at that, the kind of level of a national government. If you, you know, if you ignore uh, groups like Hezbollah, like, you know, non-state actors like Hezbollah and, and the mm-hmm. Houthis. Uh, and so, you know, there was a, an, an obvious kind of desire to, to make sure he stayed in power and, and you know, but, keep that, that structure in place. But in terms of Iran's ongoing hostility to an American presence in the region, I mean, that's not about IS, right? I mean, do they, do they consider um, I mean, as you, you know, as you suggest, as, as Paul Pillar kind of noted, I mean, we're taking that as the reason to oppose Iran. And yet, if we weren't there, that wouldn't exist. It's, it's, it, 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 right. And, and I, and so I guess the question is, I mean, why do they find the American presence in the region undesirable? Do they find it literally threatening? Uh, or what? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the American presence, I think is literally threatening because the American presence in the region, you know, in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf and in Iraq is, is really motivated by a desire to kind of surround and contain Iran. So I think there, there is a, a, a correct, I would argue, uh, sense that this is a, a threat to the Iranian regime. When you have people in Washington, you know, not, Every administration, and not, not always talking openly about this, but the obvious kind of overarching goal of U.S. Iran policy since 1979 has been regime change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite, you know, a couple of, you know, there's been a couple of occasions where they've sort of backed off of that and, uh, the Obama administration kind of pulled, pulled back in the, you know, the second half of in his second term. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's been, um, making it impossible for the Iranian government to function and, and trying to create the conditions under which it could be overthrown, whether, uh, you know, kind of internally or, you know, I think after the invasion of Iraq, the, the concern was, uh, we could be next. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, um, to have a hostile and openly hostile, uh, world power kind of surrounding, uh, your country. And, and this gets into the, the U.S. presence in Afghanistan to some extent as well. Uh, you know, that's, it, it's deeply kind of, disconcerting to yeah. the, to the Iranians. Although of course Iran doesn't like the Taliban either. Um, uh, well, they, I mean, they, they do increasingly, um, do they? you know, they've been working with the Taliban for uh, a few years now, both as sort of a um, kind of a way to disrupt the U S presence in Afghanistan. And again, you know, I keep, keep coming back to these guys, but again, you know, the Islamic state had a, a moment there in Afghanistan where it looked like it was kind of, uh, really on the rise and, and the Taliban were sort of for the Iranians, uh, the lesser of two evils. And, and, you know, they, they, uh, made the decision to start okay. kind of collaborating with them. Now it is, it is true that in the nineties when the Taliban was, uh, in charge of Afghanistan, they, they, they really did not 
get along with one another, mm. the, the Iranian government and, the, and that Taliban government. And, and as for Iran's uh, finding the U.S. threatening, I mean, we did uh, we did help depose uh, a democratically elected leader in 1953, which is was the the and install a dictator, which was the fundamental grievance uh, fueling the 1979 revolution. And then more recently, I guess we more or less supported Iraq during the Iran Iraq War. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's the more salient. Historical uh-huh. grievance. Mossadegh, uh, the, the overthrow of Mossadegh is a is sort of um, something that Iranians often point to as as a you know a grievance. Um, I don't know how relevant it is for the Iranian government now, the post nineteen seventy nine government, because Mossadegh was Mossadegh's legacy is a complicated one. He was pretty secular, you know, not a religious guy. Um, and so he's not somebody that like Khomeini never had anything nice yeah. to, I told Khomeini never really okay. had anything nice to say about Mossadegh. Um, so it's a little complicated. They do sometimes point to that and say, you know, look, you can't trust the U.S. But I, I think for most Iranians and, and, you know, especially the generation that kind of lived through and experienced that war, which is, was extremely violent and, and, you know, uh, led to, you know, caused, you know, a, a, a lot of deaths, you know, Saddam Hussein using, you know, uh, chemical weapons in, in, against Iran. And, and, you know, they kind of experienced that trauma. Uh, the, the, the big grievance is that, that the United States, yeah, basically was, you know, had thrown in with, with Saddam and, and supported him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, one more question about those oil fields. I, I assume that. Although Trump, I'm sure, when he thinks of oil fields, he thinks of dollar signs. I, I would think that the motivation of the U.S. in hanging on to those has more to do with depriving the Assad government access to them, right? I mean, it's part of its not letting go of of, of the war against the regime, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's still some kind of dead-ender sense in Washington that, that they can force – Assad to not kind of, you know, depose himself and go off into exile, but, it, but make some political reforms, um, you know, some kind of nod so wait, at, you, you, at democratization. I, I mean, it's a fringe thing, I think, at this point uh, in D.C., but the idea is that if you deprive the, the Syrian government of its main resources and those uh, kind of eastern oil fields are one of its, its main economic uh, kind of support pillars uh if you deprive them of access to that then you interfere with rebuilding the country and you can sort of uh you know have a basis for you have some leverage to negotiate then over uh the the reconstruction process i see so so it's possibly about leverage in negotiation with assad not necessarily about regime change um well i mean i think that the goal either way is regime change, either to, to right. like force, uh, Assad out and, and kind of by depriving, um, you know, as, as is the policy in Iraq and Venezuela, you know, a lot of places to, to force these undesirable, uh, governments out by you depriving mean, you mean the Iraq, people you mean, of, you said Iraq, do you mean Iran? I mean, yeah, Iran, sorry. Uh-huh. Um, you know, to sort of, uh, create so much misery that the people kind of rise up and, and, you know, get rid of these governments for us. Um, that, that's, that may be one aspect of it, but I think, you know, it, uh, the other, the other part of this is, uh, could you kind of 
lever use that leverage to force um you know the adoption of of a more democratic system with a little more popular input that would eventually result in you know Assad losing power mm-hmm. anyway so the goal either way is is you know his removal and do you think that is a goal mainly because of its connection to Iran? I mean, is the thing we ultimately most dislike about the current regime, its friendly relationship with Iran and the way uh, Iran can uh, have a presence in Syria and and do things by virtue of that? Yeah, that's I mean, that's the main grievance. It, it gets at, um, you know, he, he the the sort of conduit that Syria provides between um, Iran and Hezbollah, which creates problems for Israel. Um, and again, just the sort of, um, mindset that Iran having influence anywhere in, in, uh, the region is, is bad for the United States somehow. Okay. Cause I mean, the, the, you know, the issue of, uh, I mean, withdrawing troops, I understand withdrawing troops from Iraq might well create uh, a destabilization that would be a, a, a short-term problem, but uh, including a political problem for whichever president did it. Whereas in Syria, it just seems like in principle, it's pro- – I don't know anything about the <laughs> – I don't know why I'm saying this as if I had any idea what I'm talking about, but it just seems like uh the withdrawal, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, Assad would presumably take that territory – uh, but, but I don't, I don't see it being the kind of mess you would expect in Iraq. Am I no, wrong about I mean, that? The U.S. is sitting on a, a relatively small part of Syria. Um, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, in any position to sort of, uh, you know, it's not a, it, it doesn't have enough of a presence to be, for a withdrawal to be destabilizing to anybody except the Kurds, um, who, you know, have relied on the United States. Uh, and been fairly reliable proxies uh, for the United States and, and have already sort of suffered, um, you know, a setback. I mean, you may, you probably remember when, when Trump kind of ordered mm-hmm. the U S off of the, the border out of the border region and Turkey moved in. And, you know, obviously there's uh, that's a whole nother discussion, Turkey and the Kurds. Um, but, but, you know, then Trump was sort of convinced uh, to leave this kind of residual force there. And, and, uh, I think the appeal was basically we can, we can have the oil and like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was enough for Trump. And, uh, uh, but that's, you know, there's sort of the Kurds, the, the SDF are sort of reliant on, on the United States and that, uh, uh to sort of protect their interests. And I, you know, I feel, um, if I were running the SDF, I would have been in negotiations with the, the Syrian government, being the Kurd, the Kurdish, yeah, is the, that Syrian, the political uh, Syrian arm democratic the, forces. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's it's mostly the uh, the Kurdish militia, uh, the YPG militia, um, but they created this SDF as kind of a uh, cover, I think, um, and they they incorporated a few uh, Arab, small Arab forces into it. Um, during the the fight against the Islamic State, to kind of um, I think kind of show that, or kind of to make to demonstrate that they weren't just in t- just a Kurdish uh, 
uh, force. And that's, that has to do with sort of the political dynamics in, uh, Northeastern Syria, which is, you know, part of it is predominantly Kurdish, but a lot of it is predominantly Arab and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of making themselves more palatable to the Arab population. Part of it has to do with, uh, the United States and its relationship with Turkey so that we could kind of look at, go to Turkey and say, look, this isn't just a Kurdish militia mm-hmm. that we're backing. It's this other thing. Um, uh, so it's kind of a, it's kind of fictional. You know, there's, there's some, um, you know, sort of, uh, Arab element to it, but it's mostly the Kurds. Um, and it, you know, to me, the smart thing to do would have been, you know, a couple of years ago to, to really start negotiating with the Syrian government over, um, you know, what kind of political arrangement can we get? What kind of autonomy could we get for the Kurdish population of, of that part of the country, mm-hmm. uh, in exchange for, you know, handing back control of, of these places. They, they don't have the border anymore, but they still have uh, these oil fields that they could trade back. What was their status before the anti-Assad insurgency? I mean, did they, I know they, what they wanted was a nation that would have, well, that would have transcended uh, those local, uh, the current boundaries. But um, did they, were they more or less allowed to, I mean, were they persecuted? Were they allowed to, you know, what? Um, Syrian Kurds, my my understanding of it is um, like the Syrian Kurds have not been or were not as badly treated as the, let's say the, the Kurds in, in Southeastern Turkey. Um, you know, Assad kind of allowed them to, to function to some degree, but they weren't on good terms uh, with his government. The YPG w- was not, I mean, they weren't like, uh, you know, sort of uh, on Assad's mailing list or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, it, but after the, the war started, I mean, the, the um, there was a lot of enmity between uh, the YPG and the Islamic State and some of these rebels, some of the Syrian rebel groups that are very sort of, uh, Islamist in their, uh, their ideology. Um, uh, and, and they, they have worked with the Syrian government in some ways. They've sort of established, uh, they had established in the, especially in a couple of border cities, a sort of tenuous kind of coexistence with, uh, whatever rump, uh, government security forces were still in those places um, that occasionally flares up or has flared up into uh, violence. But for the most part, they've been able to coexist. And then, but then of course the, uh, the Turkish invasion kind of uh, kind of uh, sent all that into kind of scattered all that into uh, a little bit of disarray. Okay. And do you have any sense to get back to the, the conflict between the U.S. and the uh, militias in in Iraq uh, and to some extent in Syria. Do you have any sense of the implications for that, for the uh, still ongoing attempt to restore the Iran nuclear deal? Uh, I I can't tell whether the uh, Biden administration is assuming we can just compartmentalize these two things and, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time as they say in what is actually kind of a an inapt metaphor, I think, but anyway, leaving that aside, um, the, uh, uh, or, or are they just willing to sacrifice the, the deal or what, do you have any sense for what's going on there? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's partly meant to, to demonstrate to Iran and to the, the folks who are skeptical about reengaging in Washington, who are sort of skeptical about reengaging with the, the nuclear deal or outright opposed to it. 
that the administration, the Biden administration, isn't going to give right. Iran a pass on on everything else. That they do feel like they can kind of silo these things off for now. I mean, part of the the problem or the difficulty that they've had, I think, in you know some of the reporting, it's it's pretty clear that that uh, part of the difficulty they're having restoring the agreement, the the nuclear agreement, is that. Uh, the Biden administration is insisting on these uh, follow-up talks for a what they call a bigger and better deal um, that would do a couple of things. It would extend some of the the sunset clauses of the original deal because we're now at the point where a lot of those clauses are, are going to be um, you know coming up, um, and it would address other things like Iran's missile program, their relationship with. Again, groups like the Iraqi militias, like uh, the Houthis, like Hezbollah, um, you know, and th- there's a lot of resistance to that on Iran's part. And a lot of it justifiably because they couldn't like the, the original deal didn't last, but like three years before Donald Trump destroyed mm-hmm. it, basically, uh, in effect. Uh, and so they have, a, I think they have a, some, I would argue, justified concerns about entering into uh, follow on negotiations or committing to that uh, when there's really no reason at this point for them to believe that the United States will stick by the original agreement as as it was written. Um, so that's been one of the main sticking points. But so I think, you know, the 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 idea is, you know, look, we're not going to. Uh, go easy on you just because we're trying to negotiate the nuclear deal um, and, and maybe to to sort of say the same thing to a domestic audience in the U.S., but also, uh, you know, to kind of push Iran, you know, toward um, accepting the, the idea of these follow-on talks that would address a lot of this stuff and maybe would, would uh, you know, in the U.S., you know, from the U.S. perspective, would would bring an end to a lot of these uh, uh, kind of troublesome uh, non-state groups. Yeah, it's not clear to me how attacking uh, militias they support would make them more pliable in the negotiation. I understand the other part uh, kind of signaling to our constituency and to some extent to them uh, that, you know, don't get the wrong idea about what these negotiations imply, but um, right. I, I don't. Uh, but you know, the whole thing is a mystery to me anyway. So uh, I want to I want to um, talk a little about the overall kind of landscape of uh, kind of foreign policy ideology in the U.S. But before we do that, is there anything else you would say about this this whole set of issues we've been discussing? I mean, I, I it is. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I think we've covered it pretty well. The, the illogic of, uh, the, the United States sort of 40 year obsession with Iran has, has led it to some strange and, and I think, um, uh, not particularly helpful places. And, and the window that, that seemed to open uh, in Obama's second term to kind of, address that and and come to some more uh, productive relationship with Iran, not an alliance or anything like that, but just a, a place where uh, we could be talking to one another, where there you know was the possibility of uh, engagement. Um, it, I think, you, you know, unfortunately, uh, that has been foreclosed upon uh, by, it was foreclosed upon by Trump and, and the, the kind of lingering 
uh, you know, a resentment sort of, but B kind of mistrust uh, that, that Trump's decision to pull out of that deal engendered. And it's really, um, I think a, a lost opportunity, even if they manage at some point to, uh, agree to restore the the nuclear deal. I think the possibility of that serving as a springboard uh, for something else, or so you know, some you know broader uh, engagement has been lost because uh, you know why should the Iranians? I mean, they have no reason to to engage on that level anymore. No, you wouldn't think, uh, and you wouldn't think it would be very appetizing to engage, <laughs> for them to engage in that level in any event. Um, the uh, so uh on the the broader picture like in DC there one thing we've seen you know within the last few years is the emergence of a community that's i guess the 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 more or less official label is going to be restrainers or the restraint community uh you know in other words you know very skeptical of intervention and very willing to entertain the possibility to you know pull back the existing U.S. military presence in various parts of the world and, uh, and, and so on. There's, there's kind of a, a realist, uh, tenor to it, by and large, I guess I'd say. Um, you know, we mentioned the Quincy Institute. That's, that's, uh, the most prominent, probably institutional manifestation of this. What, what's your take on, um, and again, responsible statecraft is, uh, is the now Quincy affiliated, uh, uh, media entity that uh, right. that you edited uh, in its prior uh, incarnation as Lobo. Yes, it's, I mean it's a little different now, but yeah, kind of. Yeah, got well, yeah. Into, I mean, quite a bit, uh, but but, but still, Loblog was the foundation it was built on. Um, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting kind of uh, time in DC, and I, I mean, I my focus is mostly on things that are happening abroad. So I don't get a lot of, I don't have a lot of time to like watch, you know, debates in Congress or, or um, that sort of thing. But I, I think it, we have some, um, th- that's where I've seen the biggest kind of shift. There are some people in Congress now, uh, you know, on the left who are uh, much more vocal about um, the problems with the, the expansive U.S. military state uh, and, uh, you know, questioning the, the kind of fundamental premises, uh, premises of, of that state, uh, than I think we've, we've seen in a long time. Um, and that's, that's led to some, you know, some developments, you know, we're Congress, I think the House of Representatives even today is, is debating kind of repealing some, uh, long forgotten, but still on the books things like the 1991, uh, authorization for the Gulf War. And, and, you know, they, they've already voted on the, uh, the 2002 authorization for the, the, the Iraq War. And, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't think you would have seen that, um, you know, I, th- I think it's a, a relatively uh, new and positive development to, to see that. Um, I think you've got a long ways to go before those voices are seriously able to challenge uh, the kind of establishment, um, the blob, uh, you know, as, as uh, a lot of people call it, um, the ment- that mentality of kind of, you know, maintaining what is in effect an empire, maintaining the frontiers of that empire. And, and um, even, you know, even as, 
you, you see this even as the, the Biden administration talks about, uh, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan, you see, you know, uh, conversations about, uh, putting a base in, in, in Central Asia to kind of monitor, uh, the same place and kind of hedging about whether or not we're going to keep doing airstrikes against the Taliban. So I think that, uh, even in a development like that, which seems to, to cut against the, uh, the establishment to some degree, that it, it was immediately, it's been immediately kind of followed up with, uh, discussions about how we can not, maybe not withdraw completely, just, right. uh, just kind of on paper. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still, a, it's still entrenched. I mean, this this kind of dominant um you know uh, interventionist mindset is still pretty deeply entrenched but uh you do see some people kind of picking away at the edges of it and i think uh you know that's that's a good development but it's going to take a while for it to really gain traction yeah um and i mean you know it seems like one one sign of the persistence of the blob it seems to me is that, uh, you know, the, 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 um, well, there's a couple of signs. Well, let me ask you wh- what you think of a kind of media coverage of foreign policy, uh, maybe mainly in the Middle East with, with which you're most familiar. Like the, uh, I mean, you don't have to do a dissertation for us on this, but you know, it, it, it seems to me the New York Times is still, uh, pretty much in a blob mindset. Am I imagining that, uh, the, uh, I'm wondering also if you see distinctions among, say, the Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal in terms of the quality of their coverage? Um, I mean, I think, I think you're right. For the most part, there's a sort of reliance on, um, you know, one of the things that I, I get frustrated about with, the New York times, especially is there is a reliance on, um, you know, kind of unquestioning reliance on the U S government, whatever sources that, that you may have in the intelligence community or, or wherever to sort of, uh, you know, spin your narrative. Um, and, and there's a reliance on a, a pretty narrow kind of segment of the quote unquote expert community, the think tanks, um, foundation for the defense of democracies is, right. for example, you know, somebody is from FDD is quoted in every piece the New York Times writes about Iran pretty much. Um, and it's, you know, it's going back to these same people who have the same kind of, uh, interventionist ideas or regime change or pushing regime change agendas and that sort of thing. Um, my favorite bit of coverage from the Middle East over the last um, I would say, I guess, month now, or, or uh, maybe a little bit longer, has been this. Uh, I don't know if you followed it. The saga of the Iranian naval ships that were crossing the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> that was oh, in yeah. Politico. It was oh, just yeah. the most absurd kind of yeah. alarmist coverage that that it was such a big deal that these ships were entering the Atlantic Ocean as though the Atlantic Ocean right. is like U.S. territorial water right. and we claim the whole thing. And it was, you know, that the framing of those pieces and Politico is, you know, a little maybe less august than the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, but it's still, I mean, it's something that gets read in, in D.C. I think, you know, my understanding is, you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty, uh, you know, extensively. And, you know, the, the, the way that they covered that story was just incredible to watch these two kind of rickety ships that were, 
maybe right. bringing arms to Venezuela under a deal that one country had reached with another country uh, legally that there's no right. you know there's no uh, violation or of U.S. Uh, you know, of international law or U.S. sovereignty in any way or, you know, threat to the United States. Uh, but this coverage of, you know, just kind of assuming that this was a horrible uh, threat to U.S. security and the Biden administration has to do something and what are they, you know, uh, how are they going to stop this as though, you know, that's a legitimate question to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, never questioning any of the assumptions behind it. I think it was just a, a perfect example of uh, where a lot of major media outlets still are with this kind of stuff. Yeah, my assumption there was that maybe somebody from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, this kind of, you know, extreme, I would say, militaristic and and, and quite anti-Iranian uh, think tank, uh, had probably convinced some young reporter at Politico, like, this is this, this is like a scoop. You're going to be the first to report on this. And then Politico just yeah. got their teeth into it. Like, this is our oh, story. Man, yeah. Yeah. They, like, they were the only ones covering it, which, right. you know, there's a reason for that. It's not yeah. that big a deal, but yeah, I think you're right. They, they kind of, they probably got fed it from somebody. Um, you know, maybe in the, the think tank world, maybe from, you know, a, uh, some part of the U.S. government and and just kind of grabbed onto it. It's like oh, this is this is huge. They're going to sell, you know, guns and and speedboats to Venezuela. Like, okay, I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's funny. Um, I, I have one slightly alarming anecdote. This now the good news is this is probably from six or seven years ago. But I was talking to uh, a pro, uh, uh, you know, it's a name you would know. I think uh, somebody who had reported for NPR still reports for NPR, had for quite a while on foreign affairs. Uh, and uh, I was describing, uh, FD, explaining like where the, the funding situation at FDD and the fundamental character of it. And, you know, Sheldon Adelson, who once advocated dropping a nuclear bomb in the desert of Iran, had given money to FDD and so on. And uh, this person said, oh, I guess, yeah, that explains it. And then added, uh, you know, that explains kind of, you know, this is somebody who had used FDD as a source, clearly. Yeah. And, and hadn't known that, A. And then B said, oh, well, you know, but when I talk to them, I also go get somebody at Brookings to give me a quote. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that's the spectrum. That's like that's Brookings. Your, that's the radical left, the left to you. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is back when I think maybe Brookings has gotten a little moved a little uh this is back when brookings you know this was uh you know during during the uh, run up the iraq war brookings was quite a force on behalf of oh, that yeah. enterprise Definitely. and this Definitely. was back more in that age i'm seeing a little signs of a little more diversity of thought of brookings i don't know what's going on i uh, or if their funding picture changed but i just this was really a senior npr foreign policy correspondent <laughs> and I know. That's, that's amazing. I know. <laughs> yeah, but it is, I mean, it is the mindset. And it's, I mean, that happens all, all over the political uh, spectrum. I mean, you know, I, the, the joke I, back in the uh, Bush administration used to be, you know, you'd have a Sunday round table with like two people from the American Enterprise Institute and like a reporter for the Washington Post. And this was supposed to be balanced, you know, balanced right. coverage. Um, and yeah, it happens everywhere. I, I mean, a lot of these places, and I, I don't, uh, I can't speak to to other think tanks, but having uh, covered Iran, you know, during my sort of 
uh, low blog days, especially around the time that, that the nuclear deal was being negotiated. FDD uh, did a lot of media outreach, to my understanding. Like they, they did a lot of like proactively kind of sending out newsletters and uh, contacting reporters and, and, I think it it makes it very easy to kind of rely on them. You know, they present themselves as experts in these areas and they hand you these, you know, memos of, right. you know, talking points and, and uh, analysis, et cetera. And it, it makes it very easy as a reporter to kind of say, uh, uh, this is this is helpful. I can, you know, frame my story right. around this. And, and that's uh, unfortunate. And it's, you know, it's something I think, um that the the sort of restrainer community is getting better at but there's a lot of infrastructure that's already built into to that yeah. kind of interventionist side of things that that uh, is still very active and very powerful no ftd really understands what reporters need i mean they, they value first of all they value actual scoops if you can give them information that will create a story they'll they'll do it uh, they know that reporters want good quotes. And to be fair, FDD has some people with genuine expertise, uh, who can, who can, you know, save reporters time in that way. But, um, yeah, it's, um, uh, so the battle goes on. Um, so, uh, glad you could take the time. Now, I, I want to again, uh, both, both mention your existing, uh, the, exi- the, the parts of your media empire that I've already mentioned. The foreign exchanges uh, newsletter Empire. and podcast, but also you've got a new podcast uh, coming up. Yeah, right? this is uh, I'm I'm breaking news on on your podcast. <laughs> this is I think this is what we've needed is That's to finally yeah, to, to, to get finally scoop. have like a major scoop that would put us on the map. I mean, we missed the Iranian ships thing. We were a day right, late on exactly. that. Exactly. You know, you, you came to that late, but yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I have foreign exchanges, which is at uh, fx.substack.com. Um, but there, I do have a, a new podcast that's in the works, uh, with Daniel Bessner, who is a historian of uh, U.S. foreign policy and, mm-hmm. um, has been, you know, has written fairly widely around. He's a columnist for, for foreign exchanges, for example. Uh, we're starting a new podcast called American Prestige. Uh, meant iron- uh, ironically, <laughs> uh, somewhat ironically, at least. Um, and, uh, we're planning our first episode for, uh, sometime around July 7th or 8th. Uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, sort of big picture discussions of U.S. foreign policy. Some of it will be based on, uh, the, the writing that I do at foreign exchanges and, and sort of covering international affairs and uh you know we'll have uh guests and and um you know we're we're pretty excited to get started with it and it's yeah. just sort of really started coming together in the last couple of days so i'm i'm kind of excited and and nervous a little bit about uh, uh about that but uh, yeah brand new so i uh, hope people will keep an eye out for that that's great and daniel has a very uh big interest in intellectual history uh so i uh, will there be some of that dimension uh yeah i mean it's going to kind of try to meld uh our you know the two things that we do like i i, I don't i write a lot about um kind of international news so i it's i, I sort of my brain is sort of on uh, what happened today in this place and that place and this place and, and kind of in an atomized way. So I don't, I feel like I, I don't get a lot of opportunity to, 
to talk about what it all means in a in a larger sense. So I'm I'm excited to uh, kind of bring the the micro stuff that I do into uh, you know conversation with Daniel, who who's got this sort of uh, more macro perspective on on the theories and and the the intellectual history behind it. Okay, great. And uh, how to briefly switch to uh, promoting my stuff. Uh, first of all, I encourage people to rate and review this show, The Right Show. Smash the like button on YouTube. And uh, I have a, a newsletter called The Non-Zero Newsletter that, that's, that gets into foreign policy with some frequency, not exclusively, but uh, happens. Yes, uh, featured and, multiple times in, in foreign exchanges. You, you have so, been kind yes. enough to, to mention it. Uh, I got to say, your output is amazing. I mean, I I, I, I don't know. I, I assume you have like uh, a staff of, uh, you know, low-wage laborers in some foreign country. <laughs> uh, you, you I have a couple out. of people who, who are uh, do some, some uh, other projects at the site. Who I could call interns, I guess I don't. I pay them as freelancers, but uh, uh, no, no unpaid or low paid wage, uh, low wage labor in the in overseas. It's it's pretty much just me, and and I have some columnists, and uh, you know, a couple of people who uh, do some other things. For and there's me. a big history dimension uh, in your in your newsletter. I don't want to make it sound like it's just current events, foreign policy. There's a lot of Context, uh, a lot of, uh, well, you, you tell us, how would you describe your, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've sort of started out, um, you know, aimlessly kind of blogging. That's how this newsletter came to, to be in existence. Um, just to kind of have something to do as I was looking for a normal, like nine to five job. Um, and most of, a lot of the stuff I wrote about was, um, related to Middle Eastern history, because that's where I'd come from. I come out of, uh, uh, you know, Chicago with that background. University um, of Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I started kind of just writing little vignettes about uh, things that happened on this day in history or, or that kind of thing. And um, I've, I've just kept them as part of the, the material since then. And, you know, as it's uh, I've shifted more towards, what's happening today, like right now, as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, history, but I've kept that, that the, some of the stuff that I had already done um, as an aspect of the, uh, of the newsletter. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Good luck with the new podcast. Thanks, Everyone should Thank check you. it out and we'll, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, Bob. This is great.